0: Specialty Story, Session Number 36. Whether you're a pre-med or a medical student, you've answered the calling to become a physician. Soon you'll have to start deciding what type of medicine you'll want to practice. This podcast will tell you the stories of specialists from every field to give you the information you need to make sure you make the most informed decision possible when it comes to choosing your specialty. Welcome to Specialty Stories. My name is Dr. Ryan Gray, your host here every week, as well as the host of many other awesome pre-med, I think they're awesome, pre-med podcasts on the MedEd Media Network, which you can find at mededmedia.com. That's M-E-D-E-D-Media.com. This week we have an amazing guest, an academic colorectal surgeon who's been practicing now outside of his fellowship for 12 years. He's not only an academic colorectal surgeon, he's also the chairman of colorectal surgery at Cleveland Clinic. Let's go ahead and jump in and meet Dr. Scott Steele and find out when he decided that colorectal surgery was right for him.
1: You know, I think that's a great question, but I will tell you that it, for me, it might have been a little bit later than other people. I went into surgical residency. I, it was easy for me to say that I wanted to do surgery. I knew I wanted to do surgery from the first time that I kind of really got in my clinical years and did some primary care, and I started ruling things out. And the first time I did surgery, I was like, "That's what I want to be." And I, like many people, I thought I wanted to be in orthopedics because I like sports a lot and going on that. And then I really wanted to do heart surgery, but colorectal surgery kind of dawned on me as like many things you start to meet some mentors in life and you know when you think about colorectal surgery you know it's not a sexy topic or it's not you know it's not something we even talk a whole lot about and so um, I didn't give it much time but I found a mentor when I was in residency and kind of towards the end of my second year going into really my year and then really my fourth year I started thinking about colorectal surgery as I um, hung around them, went to the meeting, and thought that was kind of an incredible experience. And, and, and I really thought, God, these guys and girls do great surgery, but they also um, they do great academics. And uh, they take care of patients that have diseases that I, I like. They do some outpatient surgery, some inpatient surgery. And they do colonoscopies. They do major, major oncological reconstructions. And I was like, holy cow, I think I want to do colorectal surgery, which was kind of a shock.
0: What what other subspecialties as you were going through your surgical residency? What other uh, fellowships were kind of in the running?
1: You know, I thought at first again that I wanted to do heart surgery, and when the more I thought about that, the more I thought, you know, I'm really going to have to like a cabbage because, at you know, that said, you know pick a number, you know, two thirds, three quarters, 80%, whatever you want to do, that, that's what you're doing. You know, you get the valves, you can do some really complex complexing, there's some neat things that it's evolved over time, but at that stage, still the bread and butter of what everybody did was that one operation, and I just, I didn't have the feel uh, for what, um, that I could, that, that would really, not challenge me, because definitely, obviously, cardiac surgery is an extremely challenging profession, but just, I, I wanted the variety a little bit more, Um I knew I didn't want to do orthopedics in medical school after I did one of the rotations at the University of Wisconsin. It just was like, God, I, I, I wanted a little bit more, even though I liked orthopedics. I liked the people that went into it. I liked doing some of the sports things, but it just, it just didn't, uh, it just didn't trigger me. Um, and you know, in terms of other things, I, I was more the process of easily ruling things out. Surgical oncology, you know, Colorectal did great cancer operations as well. Surgical oncology tended not to do the wide breadth of people, meaning that all age ranges. They tended to be a little bit older. You know, they they kind of sat on your service a little bit more. And a lot of them ended up dying anyway in many cases. Not always, but in in a lot of cases. And I was just like, you know what, I, I, I didn't want to do that. And so... Uh, minimally invasive surgery was uh, actually kind of funny. It was a burgeoning fellowship at that stage, mm-hmm. and uh, it was its own fellowship. Like now they have minimally invasive, but it's essentially bariatrics, and except for outside of a few uh, special uh, selective fellowships that do maybe a little bit more solid organ or esophageal or, you know, that. And so I thought for me. Um, colorectal also did minimally invasive and think about it now minimally invasive is a standard component of any particular field of the which you went into it's not really in and of itself and so um, I, I I don't know I, I would tell you that I, I stand by what I said earlier I, I really want kind of I made the jump from heart surgery to that I, I knew I didn't want to be a general surgeon I, I, I was a general let me take that back so I was a general surgeon Uh, I was in the military, and I spent a year after my residency at Fort Hood, Texas, where I practiced general surgery, and it was a great year. I I, I take nothing away from it, and I really did uh, the vast bread and butter of general surgery, and I grew up in a small town in northern Wisconsin where to this day, the, the several general surgeons that are there are fantastic surgeons who do a ton of things, vascular, they do uh, a lot of things that, you know, major medical centers people, you know, are so so specialized they don't do. But uh, I just always felt that for me that I felt like general surgery, I didn't want to get pigeonholed and be in being the hernia guy or the bowel obstruction guy or the, um, the, the lap coli or appy person. And I, I just, I, I wanted to I knew I wanted to do academics, I knew I wanted to do um, you know uh, kind of sub, a subspecialty and and the more and more that I went into colorectal surgery, the more I realized man it, it kind of fit my personality and it and it really fit all the things I was looking for
0: in a career. So let's talk about that personality aspects what What traits do you think lead to being a good colorectal surgeon?
1: you know, I think if you ask all the different subspecialties, they'd probably all say the same things. And that may talk about more about how we are as people and whether you, you know, want to tag or turn people, you know, narcissistic or whatever they (laughs) want to say about physicians or surgeons, that's, that's up to there. But, uh, you know, I think that what I found with colorectal is that uh, they didn't take themselves so seriously. And obviously this is, Broad sweeping strokes. Um, and, you know, you can find all sorts of different, you know, some of my mentors are cardiac surgeons or neurosurgeons or whatever, pediatricians or family practice docs. But uh, what I found in Colorectal is that they didn't take themselves too ser- seriously. They had a ton of fun. Uh, they were generally good people, but they also could have a side where they, you know, there were busy clinical surgeons, you know, in the community and in academic centers. And they also, for those that did academics, it was, you know, great medicine. There was people who did basic science research and others that did, you know, uh, hardcore epidemiological research. And, um, you know, th- that's that's what I thought really made a difference. You know, when you see a patient that goes in code, one, one of the things I always tell uh, my residents or my fellows or anything is, remember, when you walk into somebody you're seeing clinic and you walk into that room and you pick up a charter and these days, you know, log on to the EMR and see what they're doing. These patients, if it's an anorectal complaint, they have a, a very special, if you will, part of their body that they may not even tell their spouses of many, many years what's going on with them. Because it tends to be something that's, you know, very intimate and very personal. And think about it. It bleeds or it itches or they feel something or you name it. And that patient in many cases think they have cancer or they think think something's wrong. And, you know, if your arm itched or bleed or or that you felt something on it or hurt, you'd look at it. It's very hard to look at that part of your body. And so, you know, they're having an extreme amount of trust. And then within five minutes of talking to them, you're asking them to pull down their pants (laughs) and look at their backside and, I mean, and you know, what do you, what do you think is going through that person's mind? It's anything ranging from, oh, my God, am I clean? Or, oh, my God, how embarrassing is this? Or, I hope they don't find cancer. In all of those different aspects, you have to be able to go in and establish a patient rapport right off the bat, make them understand that for whatever reason, despite their misconceptions that – um that it's okay and it's very routine. And, and many, many people experience the same type of symptoms that they're experiencing. And, and, you know, and to keep it a little bit light and, to, you know, and to, but also to let them know that you take their um, symptoms seriously and that you, you're going to walk them through that process and they, you can have absolute trust because uh, it's a, it's a very bothersome, very worrisome thing. And, and, uh, you know, Ryan, keep in mind that, If you want to go to the other end of the extreme and not just the anorectal stuff but cancer, just remember in the United States alone, colorectal cancer is the second or third third leading cause of cancer-related deaths in the United States annually the second or third leading cause of cancer-related deaths in the United States alone every year. It's something that we don't talk that much about. We talk about it more. but So it is something that we can intervene on and interact on. And so it's a very serious topic, but you don't take yourselves too seriously. And I think those are some of the traits that really make a, a good colorectal surgeon.
0: Good. Thank you for that. What sort of patients—obviously, you talked a little bit about, uh, obviously, the cancer patients, uh, but what sorts of patients, what sorts of diseases are you seeing on a, on a day-to-day basis?
1: So that's the great thing about colorectal surgery, is that um, you see all age ranges. You see uh, a, a very mixture of benign and uh, malignant disease. I like to—you know, one of the things when we were putting together the uh, third edition of the American Society of Colorectal Surgeons— um, textbook of colorectal surgery the Ascars textbook of colorectal surgery I had the uh, unique and very privileged um, opportunity to be the, the lead editor of that um, of that textbook and when we were really talking about it we thought about how we organize colorectal disease and really kind of we organize it into six six first of all in kind of endoscopy that's a large percentage of what we do we use scopes and you know we are able to do a lot of things through the scopes do EMR and ESD and and take out polyps, and you know, do some pretty advanced procedures through there. We see the plethora of anal disease, hemorrhoids, fissures, fistulas, um, things like that. That's the routine, common, you know, you know, butt stuff that everybody says: drain <laughs> butt pus or do deal with hemorrhoids and that. And that's you know, that's a, that's a big part of the practice out there. You see uh, the malignancy, uh, anal cancer, rectal cancer, colon cancer, and you know, in many cases, those are the you know, those are the major. Um, operations that you get to, you know, go into the belly or do uh, minimally invasive procedures and use laparoscopy and open surgery and robotics and all the different kind of neat tools and tricks that you do. See a lot of the benign disease, which includes a lot of the inflammatory disease, uh, inflammatory bowel disease, such as uh, such as IBD, uh, you know, the Crohn's disease and ulcerative colitis, and also diverticulitis, um, and then pelvic floor disorders. So, those uh, patients who have obstructive defecation or those patients who have rectal prolapse or, um, you know, fecal incontinence, um, that, that's a, that's a whole other subset. And then the last one's kind of just kind of your, your, your standard miscellaneous type ones, uh, that, that you kind of go into the, that can fit in de- different areas. But, you know, those, those five things that I mentioned before, um, are really the ones that, When we're talking about colorectal disease, you can break each of those down and say how, you know, you got the young woman who has had her first childbirth and she has a horrible sphincter tear, and you have to reconstruct her pelvic floor, deal with her incontinence, or the, you know, some people who are more elderly and they get, you know, colon cancer, rectal cancer, and. The anorectal disease that is technically, in many cases, some of the more technical challenges that it is to do a solid hemorrhoidectomy or to reconstruct a sphincter, or you know, do some of these minimally invasive procedures. Um, you can see how you have all the plethora, and then you combine that with scopes, where you can say, "I'm going to, I'm going to do things endoscopically and, and kind of be on the forefront." We have one person in our department who really is a very gifted and technical surgeon who was, you know, able to take out early cancers through the colonoscopy and save people from having to undergo a major surgery. And uh, some of it's inpatient, some of it's outpatient. And it really is that wide breadth of patient variety, ages, outpatient, inpatient, you know, scopes, major operations that I think is the unique part of colorectal surgery. When you really start to contrast that with things like surgical oncology or cardiac surgery, and that's what really kind of drew me to the field.
0: What does a typical week look like for you?
1: Well, for me personally, maybe much different than many other people who are colorectal surgeons out there. What I would tell you of that for me, uh, Mondays are my operating room uh, days. Tuesday, I have an all-day clinic. Wednesdays, as the chairman of the department, I is my admin day where I typically have a lot of meetings or I'll add something on. Uh, Thursdays are again an operating day. And Friday, I do scopes and I have some um, meetings in the afternoon. Uh, I would say that's a pretty standard um, week uh, for people where you see, um, you know, where you have a mixture of – you may have one more clinic day or another half day of this or that or the other thing. But, um, you know, I also – I. uh, the the person who started Relay for Life uh, that a lot of people may out there have heard for the American Cancer Society was actually a colorectal surgeon in Tacoma, Washington. His name's Gordy Clatt, and unfortunately he died um, just a couple of years ago. And he was a wonderful man and a very hard uh, surgeon. And he was a community colorectal surgeon, and I he was an independent provider, one of the last independent providers, and I covered for him for. God, it must have been seven years that I would I would actually I was in the military and um, I would take some vacation and cover for him and he had a much different practice. He saw clinic at least a half a day every day and he would operate most days as well. The, the you know the admin days and some of the things that you might get in an academic medical center aren't necessarily a, a, a part of many private practices. That definitely wasn't his. He ran his own business with his wife being his business manager and and so you know he would to have major operating days that were maybe three uh, days a week. You would do colonoscopies on a certain day of the week, and you would also always come back to his clinic and at least see some clinic. And so there is a wide variety, and it depends on where you're at. And also, what is the practice that you're in? Remember, if you have a big... Group practice or a multi-specialty clinic, such as the poly clinic in Seattle, or, or do you work in a in an academic medical center like the Cleveland Clinic? Um, that is obviously a very busy, high-volume center. Depending on what your niche is and and what you're be able to do, really would determine your practice. So somebody in my department that does pelvic floor may see a little bit more clinic than. Um, then somebody who uh, maybe is a IVD specialist who may have a mixture of clinic and operating days. And so it kind of, kind of varies. And again, that goes to the individual unique practice that you want to set
0: up. Looking at the numbers of patients that you see in the outpatient setting, what percentage of those patients are you actually then bringing to the operating room to perform procedures or surgeries on?
1: I would tell you this is that we treat colorectal disease And as a part of that colorectal disease, depending on the referral pattern that you're in, would determine a lot of how much medical management has already been done. Because think about it, many many pelvic floor disorders, for example, just they need medical therapy or a workup on it. Fecal incontinence, in many cases, is can be treated with, you know, uh, bulking agents and some imodium and some pelvic floor retraining alone and not need an operation. Or many, most people with hemorrhoids, you know, there's a lot of studies out there would take a look and say that 50% of all hemorrhoid consults aren't hemorrhoids alone. Or there's something that never needs an operation. Or diverticular disease can be treated with medications. Diverticulitis, not diverticular disease, but diverticulitis can be treated with antibiotics. Or, you know, just with bowel rest and um, some other things alone. And definitely IBD, depending on if you have gastroenterology, that treats it medically. If you're a colorectal surgeon, that does some medical management of it as well. You can see that a lot of these disease processes which we treat are a combined multimodality, modality multi-specialty type approach that medical management is a major part of it. So I would tell you that, uh, you know, in a typical clinic, not counting your post ups or your your post-ops or your follow-ups, you know, anywhere between, you know, 20% or a third, depending on your individual practice, uh, you know, may actually require surgery. But all of them, have some semblance of needs for the colorectal surgeon to treat either surgically or, or medically. And they look to you as a quote unquote expert of the hind gut and the anorectal region to treat whatever is going on in that case. And so uh, you do have to know your medicine. Yeah.
0: For you in a, a bigger academic center, what does call look like?
1: Well, I you know, I would have to say that call varies more than anything else. So call depends on who takes call, how many people are in the practice, and if you're asked to do general surgery and colorectal or just colorectal surgery alone. And do you have acute care surgery? Do you have fellows? Do you have residents? Were you in a unique aspect where at a major medical center, and again, I I would have to look and make sure that I would quote this right, but I still think that we are, if not the largest, one of the largest colorectal departments in the United States and maybe the world. You know, we have well over 20 colorectal surgeons. Uh, and, and so call for us isn't as busy, but they can be extremely busy when that you're on call because there's a major referral center that we're at here at the Cleveland Clinic. Um, we get patients from all over the you know, Northeast Ohio to, you know, Kentucky, West Virginia, it's all over the world, really, we get referrals from. So, um, and then with a lot of the diseases that can happen that affect the colon in such a busy hospital and, you know, in the tertiary care medical center, such as ischemic colitis or something, somebody undergoes a, you know, a vascular procedure and our vascular and our heart surgeons are extremely busy, you know, you, you get those type of patients as well. So we have fellows and we have residents, um, and that's a, it's a very busy fellowship and a very busy residency. And I sure they can tell you, they, they are up all night long. Uh, and you know, as staff surgeons, we have nights where we are as well, but they take the brunt of it. Um, uh, but it's a busy call, but you know, we, we're not, we're not crushed with call. I've certainly been on call a lot more, um, in other places that I've worked, um, And you have to determine as a subspecialist, especially a subspecialist as a branch out from general surgery, which what I would include in there, things like bariatrics, things like minimally invasive surgeons or surgical oncologists, colorectal surgery. Um, Each of these, oftentimes you're asked to take general surgery call. And so when I was uh, in the military, you know, my call was colorectal surgery, but it was also general surgery call. And, And that, you know, that mixes in your bowel obstructions, your Uh, your uh, cholecystitis and appendectomies and hernias and stuff like that and so that can drastically change your call not only the number of call but the type of patients that you see and some people want to do that i did general surgery call for 17 years um and i can probably say i don't do general surgery call anymore and i don't do trauma anymore i did trauma for a long time um and and i'm just fine with that but other people they're looking for jobs as a part of their colorectal. practice that they can still do a little bit of general surgery
0: is it easy to this isn't a common question but because you've talked about it a little bit for somebody that is interested in colorectal surgery because of the specific surgeries the specific patients would it be easy for someone coming out of fellowship to find a position where they can only do colorectal surgery or is it pretty common to need to be able to do the general surgery still
1: you know i would say depending on the community that you're in in many cases um, unless you're going to a major medical center where it's a colorectal call only i wouldn't be surprised especially as a junior person that you'd be asked to do at least some general surgery call and that's got its pluses and minuses yeah you know when we are when i'm looking to hire even within our own department there's some people that you know will um, on the one of our uh, Eastside hospitals that they take a little bit of general surgery call and you know and that's again that's feeling a part of the institution that you're working at you, you know you, you have they have partners you know we at the Cleveland Clinic we have a main campus and we have a you know um, some uh, tertiary hospitals and some smaller hospitals and things like that and you know guys and gals that are primarily at the uh, at, at the outer institutions not away from the main campus. You know, they take general surgery call but that's also a part of the hospital they they are a part of they also have other jobs in the hospital and the executive committee or they're the chief of surgery out there and you know you you're working with these people and you get to know the fellow doctors that you're working with and it's the camaraderie and you help out and you cover for them and they cover for you and so that's that's a that is a unique aspect of that for me i you know i took general surgery call because i liked it um you know at times it's rough and it's time it's there but I would say that the vast majority, especially earlier in your career, and especially if you're going in many cases to a community-based setting, don't be surprised that you're going to be taking some general surgery call.
0: Okay. Now, again, it might be very unique to you because of your position at Cleveland Clinic being a large colorectal program, but for you as a colorectal surgeon, do you feel like you have enough time for your fun stuff outside of work, whether that's family or hobbies or anything like that?
1: I would say that this goes to most physicians in general and, and most surgeons that I know. Time is the most precious commodity that you have. And that's why prioritization and really determining what do you want to do in life and what do you want to be and what are your goals. I don't care if you're a family practice doc or you know a neurosurgeon or a colorectal surgeon. You have to prioritize and say what type of practice you have, what type of you know, what type of priorities do you have and where do you go? And I would say earlier in my career, I knew I wanted to do academics, so I had a very hard time saying no. I would, anybody asked me to write a chapter, I'd write a chapter. Anybody asked me to review an article, I'd do this or go to a travel or teach a course or, you know, and do whatever, cover a call. I mean, and you know, I, I, for a while, and then being in the military, I started getting deployed and I deployed a fair number of times, and. Next thing you know, you turn around and I have one daughter and you grow up and I was like, holy cow, I'm missing a lot of her life. You're going to be busy. If you want to do academics, uh, you know, there's never enough time for academics. There's no such thing as protected time. You know, even people who have quote unquote protected time, everything else impinges on your protected time. Um, And so you have to, you have to really set aside time and decide what you're going to do. And I have had real good friends who started on an academic career and did a bunch of stuff just like me and they just they they felt like, you know what, I didn't have the passion for it. And they and they kind of stepped back from it or just did it selectively. And that's great. And that's fine. It works for them. I like academics a lot and unfortunately you have to find time. You know, I review for a number of journals and be an editor and I did several textbooks and Um, and academic surgery has been a very fulfilling and wonderful career. I've met, I've traveled the world and met wonderful people and operated in places I never thought I would operate on or even see from a, I'm a small, I'm a kid from a small town in Northern Wisconsin. I I would have never thought that I, I kind of saw some of these places and had the unique experiences, but, um, but, but I knew I wanted to be the guy who the buck stops here or tried to, you know, you know be involved in the journal and be involved in textbooks and be involved in teaching fellows and residents. So when I sit down with fellows, you know, we have a new batch of fellows that came in and I have breakfast with the chairman type thing and they kind of sit down and we were just talking about this this last week. I said, you know, who do you want to be? Not training is funny, especially at a medical student, especially at a residency, you'll constantly have people come up to you and say, Oh, how could you choose this profession or that profession? (laughs) You know, you'll feel this angst that, oh, I can't talk bad about it or I can't say what I really want to do. Or, you know, especially when you're training in academic institutions, you feel this push to say, God, I don't want to say that I want to be a community based surgeon, but God, that's what I want to do. And, you know, and think about it. Over. Over half of our specialty, I still believe, is is made up of community colorectal surgeons. I mean, the that, the majority of people, that's what they do. That's America. That's the socioeconomics that we have, and the and the demographics, and even the you know the geopolitical aspect that we have out there. You know, it's a big landmass. mass. Many general surgeons cover a lot of things, and colorectal people, you know, may find themselves clustered or being an independent thing, an independent town, kind of working on their own, and. Um, So when I asked them and I sat down, I said, you know, don't tell me what everybody's told you for a while. What do you want to be? Do you, I knew when I walked into my first, you know, week of residency, surgical residency, I knew I wanted to be a program director. I saw that guy and I was like, I want to be him. And I, as I progressed along, my residency. I knew I wanted to do academics, and I honest to God, I knew I wanted to be a chairman one day. I didn't know. I didn't. I, I feel like I'm the luckiest person in the world to be the chairman of, of colorectal surgery at the Cleveland Clinic. This is a great job at a wonderful institution with extremely talented people in my department and outside of my department surrounding me, and I've had many, many friends at other institutions um, that are lifelong friends outside of medicine, but I knew that's what I wanted to do. I knew I wanted to do the complex cases where the buck stops here, and one of my best friends in life is just like, dude, I don't want to do that. I want to be the guy that just, you know, I want to do the, the bread and butter things and take care of patients and be a very busy person and, you know, get home in five so I can teach my kids softball. And, and do that. And that's great. And, um, and I still have, now I have an opportunity to do much more of that and everything, but it's just a matter of, you know, how you want to prioritize. And so my advice to people is be true to yourself because there's going to come a time and day when all those people that are telling you to do this and that, um, they're going to kind of, you know, fade in and out of your life as time goes on, depending on those relationships, but you have to be happy. And the worst decision you can make is find yourself in a career that you never wanted to be in the first place.
0: The path to becoming a colorectal surgeon, what does that look like residency, fellowship-wise?
1: You know, colorectal throughout the years was uh, started out in the communities, and that's why you see a lot of the major um, kind of colorectal training programs or, you know, in some cases community-based, they're the clinics. So Cleveland Clinic, Ashner Clinic, Mayo Clinic, Leahy Clinic, um, University of Minnesota where I trained It was one of the few universities that um, – that had a training program, a major training program. Um, and a lot of that was because of the fact that a lot of the university centers felt like general surgeons could do it all. And they didn't have a need for colorectal surgery. Now as medicine in this time and life in general has changed, what you find is that, uh, is that there is a call for subspecialists in a, just with trying to keep off all the different information all the different technologies and the disease process and everything we're finding out about these disease processes the call for having subspecialists not always in every place but available or as a referral is 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 a need and so the subspecialization in many cases has got a positive and negative effect on it meaning that you know in some cases you have people who think that they're going to learn everything they want to learn in their fellowship and they can just kind of coast through a residency. And that's not true at all. Our goal in fellowship is to refine and retrain people. It's not to teach them from, you know, the basics. And so the pathway to that, it means that as subspecialization has become uh, a little bit more prominent and as colorectal surgery has really taken off and now found a niche, not only in the community, but also at the major academic centers, now they can go everywhere. So I'm proud to say that for the last several years, we've been one of the most highly competitive and sought-after matches when you consider the program slots that are available to the number of applicants that apply. And in many cases, when you look at some of these kids who come through and you see their CVs and you see some of the things that you've done, you're like, holy cow, it's (laughs) incredible to see what they do." And you'll hear many colorectal surgeons say, God, if I had to apply today, I don't know if I'd get a spot. Mm -hmm. whether that's true or not, you'll see, but it is becoming more competitive. So I would tell people out there that, you know, to get any fellowship, including colorectal surgery, it's important to plan ahead. It's important to, you know, have some research and have good board scores. And it's important to have good mentors in life where, you know, there's still nothing that really replaces, you know, if I have somebody that I truly believe in. You know, I'll I'll make a call to a certain program and say, hey, listen, they may not have the best board scores, but this person's not going to steer you wrong. And so to link up with a mentor in the, whatever field you're going into, including colorectal surgery, and really kind of find out what they do, and you get a lot out of a mentor-mentee relationship, much more than just surgery or colorectal surgery about life. And that's, that's honestly probably one of the most cool things about the job that I have right now, to serve as a mentor and to continue to be... Uh, I don't know if the word is menteed, to, to be mentored by those above me. I think that's one of the coolest things about medicine, one of the greatest things about medicine. We never stop learning. Technology continues to evolve. Disease processes and what we know about them continue to evolve. And we are always saying, I mean, when's, how many jobs are out there that you know you can go up and I can call up one of my friends or one of my associates or my boss who's a colorectal surgeon and say, hey, I just saw this patient with this. What do you think about this? I'd never seen this before, and we ha- that happens to us all the time, and that is such a great part of our jobs. Yeah,
0: the the nuts and bolts of of the the journey. So it's five years of general surgery residency. How long is the colorectal fellowship?
1: Yeah, so depending on the general surgery program that you have, it's you know five years of clinical time, and then you know plus or minus research if you have mm-hmm. a mandatory research program, or if you want to go ahead and do that. Most programs are one year, one clinical year. There's a few that are, um, a research year of colorectal and then, um, and then a clinical year after that. Um, and so, you know, obviously one or two years post training. And then in many cases, we'll have, like here at the Cleveland Clinic, we have a clinical associate year. So think about it like a super fellow where you essentially finish your fellowship year and then you spend an additional year kind of dedicated training with, um, uh, you know, with, uh, something in mind if it's you know when you want to spend six months with um, you know doing reoperative surgery or things and you only get that a few select institutions are around and you know by that stage you probably want to have a very specific type of job that you have in mind that you would be willing to or want to spend that additional year but it's that, that is a great year and our clinical associates have had a long standing history of success and kind of going on to be leaders in the field
0: for the DO student that's listening to this, that you've you've convinced them they want to be a colorectal surgeon, what does the, the negative bias in the industry look like for DOs that want to go into colorectal surgery?
1: That's a great question. And I would tell you, I would preface what I'm about to say is that um, I think that's changed over time. And I don't necessarily know if the MD versus DO thing is as prominent as it used to be. I remember when I was training, um, that there was programs that they just they wouldn't even accept a uh, a DO student um, even if the DO student was um, head and shoulders above somebody else they just they just wouldn't accept them it just wouldn't happen um, so I was in the military for a long time and we had we had uh, DO residents um, osteopathic residents and MD residents and some of the best kids that I've trained I could name their names off um, were osteopathic students as a matter of fact. Uh, he's not a surgeon, but he is an ER doc and a toxicologist out in, um, uh, out in Virginia. He was a roommate of mine in, uh, in Iraq on my first deployment. I still think he's one of the brightest in people and uh, best physicians I've ever met. So you have it on both sides of the fence. Um, but I will tell you what I told my, DO, uh, my residents who wanted to do academics and wanted to find and get their physicians. And I hope that I gave them good advice. And any of you who know who I am and know some of the military residents um, who are osteopaths, you can ask them because I told it to their face. I said I, I used me as an example, and I said that I um, I trained at Madigan Army Medical Center. Ryan, do you know where that is? You were in the Air Force, but do you honestly know where it is or what it's about?
0: Um, if yeah. you had, if I had to pinpoint it on a map, I don't think I could. Yeah, exactly. I, I know of Madigan, but I, I don't I don't know if I know exactly where it is. And
1: that's my point. So I went to West Point for undergrad. I trained at the University of Wisconsin for medical school, and then I went out to Madigan. I'm absolutely proud to have been in the military and trained in the military. I got great training. I was a staff at a military hospital. And our staff, I will tell you, I could tell you who they were and what they're doing now, and I would put our staff up against anybody in the world. And I sit at a major, major international place right now. But I will tell you that I always said to myself that, listen— Training at Madigan was not the same as training at Cleveland Clinic or Johns Hopkins or Duke or Harvard or one of these other places. It just wasn't. So I had to distinguish myself and I had to be that much better, at least look that much better if I wasn't that much better. In some cases, you could be. There's always somebody that's better out there. And I told my DO students, I said, guys, you're going to run yourself. Uh, I didn't have a female. I used guys because they were men that I mostly trained. They were the osteopathic students. I said, fellas, you, you have to say that um, you have to be real and, and understand that for whatever reason, they still still may. And the key word is there is may be astigmatism associated with going to an osteopathic uh, school for for your medical training. Um, and because of that, you may not get an interview or you may not do anything or they may look at you as starting like you better wow their socks off. So what I try to tell them is you your scores have to be that much better. Your scores, you know, your, your publication should be that much better or that more of them. And that doesn't mean that you don't, you're not better than the next person who's next to you in many ways, shapes or form. But take that stigmatism out of it because just blow their socks off. In in a lot of cases, and hopefully in most cases, they're just going to look at the person in front of them and they're not going to associate it. Just like hopefully they won't associate it with race or gender or name any one of the other stereotypes or demographics that people put into place. But um, for the osteopaths and those certain people who may have that, you know, number one, I would say it's maybe that's not the program that you want to train in anyway right if you, if somebody's coming into you and they have an automatic bias in you well then are you really going to grow there are you really going to have a good time and be part of residency's fun it's a, it, I mean surgical residency you look back at it like a lot of things it's it's a fun time and it's a lot of growth but if you have people who are you know, viewing you as a certain way that's going to be problematic. Um, but I do think that I hopefully gave him good advice and said, you know, put yourself in a good position where you, you know, you almost forced them to take a, a solid look at you and put everything else aside. And so, um, hopefully that was good advice. And we had some very, very successful, um, osteopathic students who've done a great things and take great care of patients who are, and are
0: fantastic physicians and surgeons. But, um, um, that's just my thoughts. Yeah, no, it's good. Good advice. Once, once you are a colorectal surgeon, uh, as you are leaving fellowship, what other opportunities are there to further subspecialize?
1: Everything. So that I will tell you, like most subspecialties, you can get a subspecialized. There's people that all they do is redo rectal cancer or all they do is pelvic floor or they're IBD specialists. Uh, here at the clinic, we have teams. Not everybody is—that's not all they do—but they have a focus of things. So we have a cancer team and an IBD team and a pelvic floor team, and we have people who are hardcore basic science researchers who also still maintain a clinical practice, um, but they run labs and do that. And so you can—you can make yourself in and find your niche and do that. Uh, there's an absolutely no question, and you can do that both at an academic medical center as well as in the community. Um, that that is that is the unique aspect about about medicine and about surgery, and it's specifically about colorectal surgery. When you when you or you can stay as general as you want to, and just be a you know having a broad based practice that goes in there. And I think the other aspect that's pretty cool about um, about colorectal surgery is that as you transition uh, in life, meaning that you go from you know fresh out of fellowship. To, you know, kind of your mid-career where you, you know, I'm kind of, I'm kind of in my wheelhouse right now. I'm 45 years old. You know, I've, I've been out of fellowship for. 12 years and you know so I, I'm kind of in my wheelhouse but as you transition into that later stages of life one of the unique aspects of colorectal is you can transition to you know teaching and you know a mentoring type program or you can transition into primarily endoscopy only and doing a lot of colonoscopies or even just you're going to do outpatient surgery and focus on anorectal type disease and you know I we have many people who do a fantastic job and just kind of just doing that outpatient surgery and mentoring and teaching medical students and just doing that. And And that's the cool thing about colorectal surgery because there's such a wide range of patients and such a wide range of disease processes that you can take care of um, that uh, it really fits at all, uh, at all stages of your surgical career.
0: For somebody listening to this podcast who knows that they're going to go into internal medicine or family practice, a, a primary care. What what do you wish they knew about colorectal disease so that they can treat their patients better or possibly handle them better before they they're referred to you?
1: I would say that in general, that I would answer that question a little differently. I, I think it's important that we all, I, including me, I think you become a better doctor when you know more about, uh, you know, walking in other people's shoes and see what it is, what they do in, in kind of getting a feel for their, their, their care pathways or how they treat patients. It makes it, you know, if I know that cardiac um, cardiologists or something, you know, when they have a, a, a stress type thing, this is, they, they kind of initially proceed with X, Y, and Z or, or whatever it, um, it just allows me to be a better provider and specifically for primary care docs who, you know, they're the, they're the, they're the frontline troops. They're the frontline, you know, care providers that kind of do this. I think the more they know about subspecialists, what it does is it saves the patient. Um, it saves the patient a lot of grief when they come and see me as a spe- specialist and, uh, with rectal bleeding, but they've never been treated with fiber, or they have hemorrhoids and they've never been truly treated with a, a medical therapy and uh, avoiding straining and you know in plenty of fiber and good bowel regimen, good bowel habits, because you know patients will come to me and they'll automatically think they need surgery, and I'm like, but you haven't tried any of the basics, and um, and so that's where referral guidelines and, and practice pathways and things like that that many institutions have are wonderful unique things so take a look if your institution has those and you can learn a lot about them Buy an algorithmic textbook there's a lot of them out there that even you know you're never too old to to take a look at just a textbook and look up rectal bleeding if this that boom you can follow the algorithm kind of down and say you know you tried all those things because it really makes the patient experience a lot better because think about it as a patient the last thing you want to do is go to a doctor and say you know wait couple of weeks to get in to see somebody and find out that, you know, you could, you, you couldn't have been, you know, you could have been trying something else all along that could have, you know, either helped the symptom or conversely ruled it out so that you could have just went in and gone to the next step of therapy. And so we mostly see that in the anorectal type processes in, uh, in disease states, in colorectal surgery, hemorrhoids are the classic one. In many cases, the anatomy is a little bit confusing to people. I know many surgeons that don't, you know, general surgeons that aren't as comfortable with the anatomy and don't really know what they're looking at. So nobody's expecting you to be a subspecialist. Nobody's expecting you to treat complex disease. But to understand the very basics about what a workout for rectal bleeding or rectal itching or, um Uh, or hemorrhoids or fissures those are the routine things that will come along and come into your clinic and to have the anal pain and the um the rectal bleeding algorithm down cold is a useful thing not only for you but for your patients
0: what other specialties do you work the closest with
1: a lot uh so for cancer we, we we work um a um we work hand in hand with medical oncology and radiation oncology um, and pathology and radiology as part of a multidisciplinary tumor board. We work a lot with pelvic floor disorders with our urogynecologists. Um we work with um, you know, a lot of the so we see a lot of the entercutaneous fistulas and a lot of the very you know, complex people with Crohn's that could have, you know, lots of redo type operations. Um, and so I'll work with, um, you know, general surgeons who specialize in abdominal wall reconstruction. Um, we'll do a lot of the, especially the cancer ones where you get into that. We have a, uh, we have a multidisciplinary locally advanced and recurrent rectal uh, cancer and colon cancer pathway where we work with everybody from urology, plastic surgery, uh, neurosurgery when these invade the, you know, back by the, the sacrum and the spine to work with them that need sacral resections. We work with uh, our, you know, our gynecology, oncology when they need, you know, combined multivisceral resections. So um, you work with you and, and get to know a lot of your other um, subspecialists. And, um, and, and again, probably, you know, we work hand in hand on a daily basis with our gastroenterologists. We treat a lot of the same conditions and you really get to know your gastroenterologists and that's, that they're, they're really, you know, probably one of some of the closest that we do, but I I would be amiss in saying that, that we, we know our primary care docs. I mean we get a lot we a lot of back and forth with our internal medicine and primary care docs. They they see the patients, they know their patients, and they, they're the ones that take care of their patients and they want to refer them and have a good relationship. You know, probably one piece of advice I would consider telling all the all the medical students is that when you go through training and you go through residency, it's training's this altered state of reality. You know, you you work long, long hours. You're in training and you're on call and you get called by the ER and you're like, oh my God, I mean, if I get called with another stupid consult and it kind of jades you a little bit and it happens some degree to everybody, maybe not to a certain extent to everybody, but it really does. Then you finish training and you realize that we're all in this fight together to take care of patients and all want our patients to have good outcomes. And when you really, and that's what I was saying, you know, when you really get to know what the other person does. You realize they're just one of the best thing and they got a hard thing too. I used to hate the ER. When I was a resident, oh my (laughs) God, if I got called to 1390 or 1391, there's certain numbers that for the rest of your life will be impregnated into your brain when they show up on your beeper or your cell phone or however you're called. You're like, oh my god, the ER again, you're (laughs) killing me. And you know, and then I went to Iraq and uh, we were, you know, as providers, we had a small ER and you know, we only had one or two couple of ER docs and You know, they couldn't be in the ER 24-7, so we all volunteered to take ER shifts. And I realized, you know, we used to call them triage nurses all the time, you know, when we were in residency. And I realized that, God, being an ER doc is hard. It's it's a very difficult thing to basically do. You're like, you're constantly, you know, this is something that I could take care of, uh, or did I miss something, or was it easy to send them out, or, you know, God, it was kind of a scary thing, and it gave me a... Incredible appreciation for what they do and, and the disease processes they treat and the tremendous amount of hard work they did. And of course, as you get older and especially as you get into a thing, I mean, these are the people who refer patients to you. So to have that good referral relationship, you know, that's your, that's your lifeline, right? Patients are your lifeline, even if you're in it for just for the business. All of us want to be busy and we want to be busy surgeons and take care of patients. And so to have those good working relationships and, and communicate very well is an important aspect of life and, and of a practice. So you realize very quickly they're not your enemy. They're your colleagues, and they're professional colleagues you have gone through a hell of a lot of training as well. And it's important that you keep that in mind.
0: What do you wish you knew about colorectal surgery back when you were first entering it that you know now?
1: Uh, that's, that at the end of the day, it comes down to patients. And, um, you know, you start to—it's very easy to be in any— uh, especially any surgery specialty when you start to think about cases— Oh my god what a great case and oh you did this and you did that and the other thing but it's really about understanding the the wide degree of um of what a patient is going through and it's not just colorectal surgery because I mean the, the cool thing about any specialty that you go into is you you learn so much more about the disease processes over time and you know in colorectal surgery I say it's not what I wish I knew it's just about i would tell i tell students all the time you know at the american college of surgeons they have this it's almost like set up like speed dating where you sit at these tables and i sit at the colorectal surgery table and anybody's interested they come down and they sit down and they ask a question and uh you know about hey what's it like and do this and i always try to say that you know the, it's you know it's part of the the journey is great and you know and it's extremely fulfilling you can do anything you want to from being a busy clinical um colorectal surgeon to be a hardcore academician and in colorectal surgery, like a lot of other things, um, provides you that. But probably the the, the greater thing and the neater thing about um, is is the fact that you, you you kind of grow and you kind of mature as a physician, and you mature you mature as a as a doctor and as a surgeon. But if you've ever been sick or known somebody who's close to you as sick, sometimes you lose that perspective when you're in a job on a day-to-day basis. And you, you forget that the person that is sitting there next to you, for whatever reason, has so many things going on in in in. It's important to kind of keep that in mind and keep in mind that that's a person there and not a case number and not a, a sticky or whatever the thing is. You know, we you get those little stickers of when you do cases, a lot of times in surgery and people will say, okay, can you hand me a sticky so that you can kind of record the case of what you do? And, and, and it's easy to lose sight of that. It's easier to lose sight than you would think of it. But if you keep that all under perspective, it really makes the job even that much more fulfilling.
0: What do you like the most about being a colorectal surgeon?
1: Well, I love I like taking care of patients, I love to operate. I mean, at the end of the day, I love the ability that we can go in and do something, cut something out, take care of it. I try to tell my trainees, I say there's no more intimate relationship than you will ever have than having the trust of somebody allowing you to cut into their bodies and operate on them, take something out, reconstruct something, fix something. Think about that. Mm-hmm somebody's entrusting they're going to sleep you're cutting into them you're taking out a cancer they're doing something you're 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 cutting into you cannot get more intimate than that Mm -hmm. forever i will be inside somebody else's body and it's an incredible amount of trust that they have that you would hopefully take care of them understanding that we are human and we are fallible, and we have complications that come up, I try to tell my patients all the time, I can't guarantee you that you won't have a complication. What I can guarantee you is that I'm going to do my best to do the right operation one that I'm skilled and trained to do, and I will not cut corners, and I will take care of you. And God forbid if something comes up where you develop a complication, I'm going to want to be the one that takes care of you.
0: What do you like the least?
1: Mm, I probably in my junior years I would have said butt pus, but... (laughs) But the reality of the situation is probably the least. The least is the amount of time sometimes that you have in medicine in, in charting. You know, I had clinic today and maybe I'm saying this because I come out of a busy clinic today, but you know, you see patients. I like clinic. I like talking to patients and finding out what's going on with them and, you know, and figuring out the little mysteries of how I can help them or seeing patients that you've operated on come back to clinic and they're, you know, they're they're super excited because they feel better or they got a good diagnosis or they're on their journey and they're you know they're stressed out and you're there to be able to you know listen to them and, and to go on there but the amount of time that were that all of us not just colorectal surgery but all of us have in physicians uh, as physicians to to talk to our patients and take care of our patients and really kind of listen and spend that time with them is becoming less and less and dwindling as time goes on and then you combine that with the fact that you got to chart this and that and the emr and the extra time, and and you lose sight of the fact that you had a great interaction with a patient and you took care of somebody and that sometimes can, again, can get a little bit diminished or lost in the shuffle. And so probably charting and I wish I had more time. I think more than anything, goes back to what I said earlier in the podcast, that time is probably the most precious commodity that we have in all things. And how you use it as uh, that extremely valuable resource is, is something that I think everybody needs to uh, really take a better look at and realize what do you want to do? What do you want to be and how, how do you want to spend it in the most effective and efficient manner that you can?
0: Do you see any major changes coming to colorectal surgery, whether that's technology or medications that those coming up uh, through the ranks should know about?
1: I think that um, technology always changes and always drives. And it's amazing as you go through in time, you think about some of the things that we try to use, like a colo shield to prevent leaks or this that and the other thing through the years that people have never even heard of anymore the the button or the the nitty that got on the market off the market or the magnetic sphincter or all these other things that come up people have a curious mind and they will continue to drive see a problem think about the problem and try to find something to fix it and some of those things are great and they revolutionize medicine and you know, other one of them fall by the wayside. And so I think that technology will always change. Right now, the hottest thing is, you know, you know, pushing the limits of endovascular, or I'm sorry, endo, um, endoscopic therapies for different type diseases and then minimally invasive surgery as we go more and more towards natural orifice surgery to try to decrease that. So that'll always be on the push of forefront. That's just the hottest thing right now. But, you know, I go back to the days of, um, you know, H. pylori. I mean, when the, the, the people who trained me, they did so many ulcer operations, it was going on a style. I did a handful, um, and probably the people that are training right now, they may have never done an ulcer operation because the medications that we take just eliminated it. And so the whereas minimally invasive surgery may be that at the core front, it's more about taking care of the patient in a kind of a, an entire package from pre-op to post-op to intra-op and kind of finding out how we do this and enhance recovery, um, to make sure that the patients are in the hospital the least amount. We're pushing the forefronts of having them eat, walk, do all the things again that they didn't used to do. Think about it. People used to sit around when I was training with NG tubes in their nose to wait till they passed gas or had a bowel movement. We don't do that anymore. A lot of the things, the practices that we do as a part of colorectal surgery and surgery in general, we just don't do. We find out that the sooner that we get patients back to – trying to go back to their normal daily routines, the better outcomes that they have without much of a downside. And so I think you're going to see it not only that technology is driven, but you're going to see medicine that will treat some of the different disease processes. And I think you'll also see that the care pathways that we take care of patients with in the perioperative and postoperative period are going to be the ones that, we, uh, that will ultimately change things more than anything else.
0: I think I know the answer to this but I have to ask it, if you had to do it all over again, would colorectal surgery still be your choice? Absolutely,
1: positively, yes. You know, I, I, I would say that I've lived, You know, even people say to me, God, you went to West Point. How would it do you, West Point to surgery? Is that the operative? Or is that, the, uh, is that, the, is that a wise choice? I, I think that I hope that most people would look back on their lives and realize that most of the things they did, they were at least able to grow from it a little bit. And I would do Almost a lot of the things that I've done, in, but absolutely colorectal is an absolute. God, did I say absolute enough? It was, it's a it's a wonderful career. It's extremely rewarding, and you know, and I look forward to do it for a long time to come.
0: For the medical students that now, or or even the the general surgery resident that's listening to this, and and you've convinced them, what's the the first thing that they should? go do to start to make them a more competitive applicant
1: find a mentor find somebody that can sit down and tell you the ropes that can kind of guide you a little bit you can read a textbook you can listen to a podcast such as this one or shout out to my own podcast behind the knife i had to make a plug in there somewhere <laughs> there's so many different resources that are out there that can get you the information you know they say these days is that this you know that this is the generation of information uh, that you you know access that you guys can find information very quickly the days of memorizing all sorts of things when you can google it within a fraction of a second in conference and tell me what it is but you know the information is out there and you have to have that fundamental base of knowledge but there's nothing about relation there's nothing that beats relationships and has that ability to have somebody guide you through that process great board scores doing research, doing research in the field that you want to go into and to include colorectal is extremely important. And you got to be competitive. that's a minimum. You have to be competitive because you have to make that first pass through. If you're getting, I mean, think about going to medical school. If you're getting D's in college, you'd never make the first pass through, right? It just, it wouldn't happen. So what you need to do is you need to have the baseline minimum. And those are good scores and, and, you know, have some research on hand, but really the more fulfilling part of life is having and building those relationships and finding out what makes people tick and what makes the specialty so great. And that's where that mentor-mentee relationship really comes into play and truly getting to know that person. I think that you, that you, that your walk in that journey is much more fulfilling. You get to kind of know the ins and outs a little bit more. You get to meet other people. And one of the neatest aspects of it is when you, let I me mean, think about it, when your friend introduces you a friend who becomes your friend, all of a sudden, now think about it and professionally when you meet somebody and they become your mentor and they introduce you to somebody else and all of a sudden you guys share like things and you, and you just kind of get into this whole crew. And, that, and that's when it makes it
0: really, really a rewarding experience. All right. There you have it. Colorectal surgery from an academic physician, Dr. Scott Steele. If you are interested in colorectal surgery, follow Dr. Steele's advice. Go find a mentor Go find a physician out there, a colorectal surgeon out there that's doing what you want to do and start connecting with those people. And don't forget to check out the podcast that Dr. Steele mentioned, Behind the Knife, which you can find at BehindTheKnife.org. I hope you got a lot of great information out of this podcast today, even if you aren't going into colorectal surgery. If you're going into primary care, we talked about that as well. So I hope you were able to take something out of this podcast today. Don't forget to join us next week here for another great episode of The Specialty Stories. We'll see you next time.